This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 275th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going down to Arizona to the town of Flagstaff, and I'm going to be joined by listener Susan Johnson, who also happens to host Ghost Tours there, known as Freaky Flagstaff Foot Tours. And she's going to share with us some of the history and hauntings that are going on in Flagstaff. Before we get to that, we have a whole bunch of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Nikki with one K and an I. Charles. Mary with an I. Lori with two R's. Roxanne. Stephanie with an I-E. Cheyenne, who spells her name with an S-H at the beginning. Kelly. Doug. Josh. Kristen. April. Kathleen. Justin. Tanya. Ursula. Great villain name. Zell. Lisa. Katie with an I-E. Jane with a Y. Liz. Mindy, I hope I pronounce this right, Serenice, and Erica, who goes to CU Denver. Erica, my alma mater, is CSU, so we're a bit of rivals there. Welcome, everybody, to the Spooktacular crew. We've got lots of people in the Spooktacular crew sending their information to us because they want to be part of the virtual trick-or-treat, which we're hosting in the Spooktacular crew. you got to be a member in the crew in order to join us, but it's a fun way for members to send a little gift to each other. So join us, join the virtual trick-or-treat, and get your victim. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Katrina Ray Solis. There was a time in America when one lone state declared war without the backing of the rest of the country. This was the only time it happened in U.S. history, and it was called the Aroostook War. The state involved was Maine, of course. The Aroostook War was named after Maine's northernmost county, and the dispute got started because the borders there weren't clearly defined. Maine gained statehood in 1820 and began issuing land grants but Canadian lumberjacks ignored them and continued to cut timber in the Aroostook region. They went further by kidnapping an American land agent in February of 1839. The war was on and came to a head in a bar. An Aroostook militiaman raised a toast to Maine in a local bar and the Canadians drinking in the bar didn't like it, and a fight broke out. Noses were bloodied and eyes were blackened. Not a shot was fired and the two governments came to an agreement on the border. This episode was the last confrontation between the United States and the United Kingdom, and the fact that it was considered a war without a single shot and settled basically with a bar fight certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of September, on the 8th, in 1944, the first V-2 rocket fell on London. The V-2 had been sent by Hitler and the Germans, and it left a huge crater that was 30 feet deep. The rocket took only seven minutes to travel from mobile platforms near The Hague in the Netherlands to Chiswick. The rocket had three-quarters of a ton of explosive on board, and it broke the sound barrier so there was no sound as it flew. The blast killed three people, demolished 11 houses, and damaged over 500 other homes. The youngest victim, Rosemary Clark, was just three. 
Her brother recalled, The best way of describing it is television with the sound off. You're deafened. That's what it boils down to. Seeing an airing cupboard crumble in front of you without a sound is an eerie experience. An aftershock followed that sounded like multiple thunderstorms, and then there was an eerie silence. The residents thought that a gas main had exploded. They quickly figured out that this was not a gas problem when government officials arrived. The truth about the Germans' new weapon was an open secret, but not acknowledged publicly until November 10th. Londoners took to calling the V-2 rockets flying gas pipes. Flagstaff, Arizona has its roots in the railway and its growth in the timber industry. The flourishing town became a hotspot for tourism with the Grand Canyon just up the road. This meant hotels were needed, and two that remain today are the Hotel Weatherford and the Hotel Monte Vista. They not only have a history, they also have a reputation for being haunted. Another building with ghost stories is the Flagstaff Public Library. Susan Johnson of Freaky Flagstaff Foot Tours joins me to share the history and ghost stories of these locations, as well as the horrific true crime story about the Walkup family that has some hauntings connected to it as well. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Flagstaff, Arizona. Well, I'm very excited to be joined by Susan Johnson. She has her own tour in Flagstaff, Arizona, and she said, hey, we have a lot of freaky, scary things going on down here in Flagstaff. Would you like me to tell you about them? And I want to hear all about it. So we are very excited to have you with us, Susan. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Diane. I'm very excited to be on one of my favorite podcasts. Cool. Then we're just excited all the way around. Well, since you listen to the podcast and you host this tour that is called Freaky Flagstaff Foot Tours, you obviously are into the weird and the paranormal. So I always like to ask people, what got you interested in that stuff? I think probably I've always had a little bit, a certain degree of precognition that maybe with dreams and and this and that, even when I was younger. And I've always enjoyed those stories. When I became a nurse and uh, started working as a nurse, it really kind of honed that precognition. I've had any number of incidents, as well as a lot of the nurses that I work with that we would sometimes get together and talk about with patients. Or uh, when I did hospice nursing, uh, when patients passed, sometimes they might fly by and give a little kiss or something. So so that wow. just had direct experience. But as far as the ghosts and uh, paranormal, I just love all the Hans Holzer, I, I'm saying his name right. Uh-huh. I just love all his books. So, yep, I just really like it. First of all, I just love the fact that you were a nurse because I adore nurses. They are the ones who really do take care of us. It's the doctors, they do all the writing of the prescriptions and stuff, but it's the nurses who really make us feel better. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. We we appreciate people, too. You really have to be a, a people person to be a nurse. I can only imagine. And I've heard such great ghost stories from nurses, too, because a lot of the time you're around people, you're one of the last people with somebody as they're passing. And so you experience some very unusual things because of that. Right. It can be very intense. It's also, I would say, kind of an honor when people trust you, even in the family, uh, trust you to come in and be in that intimate space. It definitely is a calling. And it's been a huge part of my life. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the tours that you host in Flagstaff and why you decided to start them? Okay, well, I really became interested in um, ghost tours and history connected because that, to me, is what makes it so interesting, the history of the place. And then if there are reported hauntings or that, about 10 years ago and At that time, my husband and I, when we would go on vacations, uh, we would check out the city for different tours. And we seemed to really like the ghost tours because, as I said, they combine the history and then they give a little bit of the spooky side, which seems to cement it in my mind anyway. Mm -hmm. And we began to go on more tours around Flagstaff, where we live, the Arizona Historical Society puts on. And they're very active and they do cemetery tours here and tours of the old buildings. They had a South Side tour called the Saints and Sinners because Flagstaff being a railroad town had uh, a lot of brothels and a lot of churches. And many of those ended up south of the track. 
so probably about, I would say about eight years ago, I started going to the library in my spare time. And I would just go through uh, the old papers that were on the microfiche tape. And I would read the old editions of the, at that time, it was the Coconino Sun and look up various events that I had heard about through the Historical Society. And later, I went around and talked to people who worked in some of the hotels that had the reputation of being haunted. I looked up some of the older residents here who had their own stories of the history and also had some tales to tell. And slowly, I began to accumulate all this information about some of the places in Flagstaff. And anyway, I put it together as a tour. Well, great. And when did you start doing that? I started the tour, I think it was four years ago. Last year, I only did a few tours and I had a few speaking engagements. I have to tell you, I absolutely love the logo that you have for your ghost tour. It's, uh, I guess you'd call them monster feet that are walking along in front of a mountain. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That was one of the first things that came to my mind. I think I saw the logo in my mind before I ever conceived of the tour. We're, we're two feet walking. And it works because that's what the tour is about, is walking. And since it's freaky stuff, you might as well have it be monster feet. That's right. Well, I have actually been to Flagstaff once in my life. It was basically just an overnight in a hotel there. But I do remember it being one of the more beautiful places that I have been in Arizona. And basically because of what I just described there with this mountain behind those monster feet, it's, it's really neat that you have the mountains right there. And you guys actually get snow sometimes, don't you? We actually get quite a bit of snow. So Flagstaff is this, it is actually a city, although the locals still like to think of it as a town. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're in northern Arizona, and we sit at 7,000 feet. So Mount Humphreys itself is, I think, around 13,000 feet. So it is the highest point in Arizona. And uh, the city of Flagstaff, though, we usually get 60 to 70 inches of snow a year. Yeah, that's a little bit more than Um, some snow. That, that's right. Yes, we, we have four seasons here, and I think that's why Flagstaff really appealed to me when I first drove through it on the way to Phoenix, which was decades ago. I remember looking at Flagstaff and thinking, this is a beautiful place, and I think I will live here someday. About 10 years later, I worked my way back up here, and I've been here for about 30 years. I don't know a yeah. whole lot about so, the history there. And I always tell people when I start the tour that There is a very rich history that goes back thousands of years with the Native Americans, the Navajos, the Hopis, the Sanawas, and I'm sure I'm missing other tribes, but I did not research that. My research started about 1880, and that was when the Atlantic Pacific Railroad, uh, the building of that, resumed after the Civil War. The railroad was in the process of being built, and then when the Civil War occurred, the whole project was called off. So Mm -hmm. after the country had gotten some stability, the building resumed. As the workers came through Flagstaff, some of them ended up staying. Many more ended up coming back after they had completed the railroad in California. And one reason was with the Ponderosa Pine, there was always going to be a need for the, the wood. Sure. Not only in building the railroad, repairing the track, repairing trestles, houses. And so the men found it a very desirable place to live. Now, in any time that the railroad goes through, of course, there's going to be all the merchants that follow and build up around the town while the men are working. There was the uh, prostitutes that followed because Mm -hmm. wherever you have young men that are working hard and they want a little party at night and they want to have some beer to drink and some women to dance with. So this industry kind of followed the railroad workers, but many of the people ended up staying in Flagstaff and that was really kind of the beginning of the town. It's neat. Kind of what I'm going to picture here is that this was a mining town, but instead of gold or some other kind of ore, it was trees. And then instead of just being a boom town, The people stayed because obviously trees are a commodity that are going to continue to grow and continue to be there. There probably was some other stuff that grew up too, like you said, with your stores and shops and things like that. Probably some farming came through and so people stayed and that's why it's it's a really large city, isn't it? 
Well, it, we now have 70,000 residents. Then we have the Northern Arizona University, and they have anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 more that, that are added during the school year. So a lot of people call Flagstaff, the locals call Flagstaff, the big city that still thinks it's a small town. And, and there was so much of Flagstaff as it was growing in the uh, late 1800s and the early 1900s that really had to do with how it was situated uh, geographically. So not only was the lumber mill, uh, Arizona Timber, that provided so much of the, the work, the, the main uh, employment for the city, uh, Percival Lowell came around 1895, 1896. He was looking for a place for his new observatory, and he chose a spot for Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. Oh, sure. And so there were, there were scientists uh, visiting as well as amateur astronomers or, or people who were just interested in the night sky. Uh, the Grand Canyon, which is only about 60 to 70 miles north of us, already by the uh, 1920s, that was becoming a worldwide destination, a tourist spot. So people would arrive by the train. They would stay over in a, in a hotel. <clears throat> and then at that time, there was a stagecoach that would run people up um, to the Grand Canyon. Oh, how fun would have that been and, to be on a stagecoach to go to the Grand Canyon? Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have been fun? Um, I would have loved that. Some people say that you can still find the old stagecoach route north of town, but I have never been able to find it myself. And I did go out there looking for it once, and there's only little parts of it left in various spots. But um, that, yes, there was a stagecoach route. It stayed overnight. They camped out, and then they would take people up to the Grand Canyon and uh, bring them back again. And around that particular tourism, then several of the hotels, the Weatherford Hotel sprang up, John Weatherford. He was a mercantilist who saw the potential with the people coming in for the Grand Canyon, also for the observatory. And by that time, Northern Arizona University was a school. It was a normal school. So it was for teachers, was not yet designated a university, of course, but there were still people coming in, professors and uh, geologists and all kinds of people. I think it was kind of the geographical location that became the seed for a lot of the, the growth of Flagstaff as a, a mountain town in northern Arizona. Now, I, I'm not completely familiar with all of Route 66. Does part of it go through Flagstaff? Yes, that was another thing in the 1920s. Thank you. Route 66 uh, came through. There, that's, uh, they'll have our Route 66 festival days oh, neat. in the summer. Yeah, and there are still parts of Route 66 that you can follow on your car. And if you get off of 40, which is the interstate that runs east-west and there are little places along the way that you can still actually drive on the road, even though it's cracked and full of weeds and <laughs> not in the best repair. Not what you'd want to be taking now. That was another big boom to tourism. Our mountain, uh, Mount Humphreys, the ski resort went up around 1940 as a snowball. But before that, a lot of people would just haul their skis, I I've been told, would take their skis and they'd... I guess they'd hike it up there, their skis on their back, and then ski down the mountain. And it would take all day to do one run. Now, of course, there's five or six lifts that operate up there. Well, obviously, with this kind of a rich history going on there, we tend to have hauntings that are connected to it and other unexplained occurrences. I don't know anything about any haunts in Flagstaff, so... I don't even know where to begin with you. So maybe you could share where you start your tour and the different buildings and such that you stop at and talk about it. Usually when we start out, we go down um, Aspen Street. And so that's where a lot of the, the main hotels are. And the Weatherford, I spoke briefly about John Weatherford. He was a mercantilist who came to Flagstaff and saw the potential. He built a hotel which still stands above his store. And that opened in, I believe it was January 1st, 1900. And he also built the Majestic Theater, which was about a block down from his hotel. And that became a real gathering spot for not only dancing and movies, also visiting lecturers would come there. 
he ran that. There's a lot of freaky tales about the noises and apparitions um, that are seen in the Weatherford. So one of the most well-known stories takes place in the Zane Gray Ballroom. That is just an absolutely beautiful part of the hotel. It's basically on the second and a half story, I would say. It has stained glass windows. It has an antique Brunswick bar and a balcony to the outside. It's just a beautiful space. And Zane Gray, the Western writer, he used to come to Flagstaff. Sometimes he'd come by himself, so the story goes, although I have also read an interview with an old Flagstaff family member who talked about Zane Gray and said he usually had his entourage with him. So that's why the ballroom was named after him. And there is a picture that hangs there. And several people who have uh, stood before that picture just admiring it, which shows Zane, it, we're pretty sure it's Zane Gray. It, it's a cowboy who's looking away. Mm-hmm. But it does, but it's said to be him. And then the mountains in the background have heard a whisper in their ear. And one woman told me that she heard a distinct voice saying, you must write this story. And she was so freaked out that she ran out. Instead of joining her friends upstairs, she ran out the door. And this woman, who is not a writer and not really, is not somebody you would think would ever is given to flights of fancy or that, she did actually write a little a little bit of her experience. And then when there was a story slam in Flagstaff, she went up and told the story. And she figured that would satisfy whoever it was that whispered in her ear. That's one story. There, there have been lots of sightings, of course. There seems to always be a lady in white somewhere. Sure. And, and there have been reportings of a lady in white who floats across the ballroom. Now, there, there's that, that Brunswick bar, which is on uh, faces outside towards the balcony. There, I did talk to several of the bartenders there, and there was one man who told me that one night he was asked by someone to for a specific bottle of tequila, and I, I think it was a very expensive bottle. Uh, it's, not, it's nothing that would be kept at the regular bar, so he had to go back in their storage area and find it. So he did. Uh, he, there was another barkeep there. So he went back. He found the bottle. He came back out. And when he did, the glasses that he had had ready to pour this tequila in underneath the bar, not sitting on top where the person could get it, were all upside down. There was four of them. They were turned upside down. The Hmm. person, uh, the other person who was just keeping watch hadn't touched them. So he said that really freaked him out. Uh, There's stories when they're cleaning up of the taps on the wet bar, turning on and off by themselves. They've heard clinking of glasses when they're in the other room. They they come back in. There's nothing there. There's no breeze coming through. So the bar seems to be a very haunted area. And in the hotel itself, uh, there is a story in the 1940s of a a young man and young woman who were there on their honeymoon. They seem to be getting along fine. And one day, the hotel staff noticed that they hadn't seen them for 24 hours and they the maids had knocked on the door nobody was answering so they had just you know they left them alone they were on their honeymoon and but after 48 hours they they thought something was up and nobody Mm -hmm. was answering the door so they did go and and open it and they found the young woman dead in her bed and I believe she was strangled and the man was found sitting next to the bed and it looked as if he had shot himself. Mm. That it was deemed a murder-suicide, although I guess there were some questions raised. But that particular room has reportedly, people that stay overnight there uh, report somebody sitting on the bed, the feeling like somebody sitting next to them, the bed going down, but there is nobody else there. And there was a woman, a young woman who's employed there, whose mother came to visit. So she was able to get her room, and it happened to be that room. The daughter didn't think anything of it. She said later the next morning when they, she and her mother met for breakfast, her mother just looked at her at the table across from the table and said, you know, honey, that room is haunted. <laughs> and the girl said, well, <laughs> and the girl says, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, she says, I woke up, and there was this young woman there sitting on my bed. And I knew it was a ghost because I could see through her. <laughs> and 
I know. And the girl said, well, what'd you do, mom? And she goes, well, she said, I just told her that it was okay, that she was fine and no one was going to hurt her here. And I guess she just kind of disappeared. Well, she did better than me. I don't know if I would have been so nice about it. (laughs) I don't think I could either. That, That is probably one of the spookiest stories I've heard concerning the Weatherford. Uh, There's also the Monte Vista Hotel, which is down the block from the Weatherford. And the Monte Vista is another, has a little bit of an interesting history. It was built in, I think, 1930. A group of citizens got together. They each anteed up about $10,000 apiece. And uh, it was called the Citizens Hotel for a number of years. And one of the main reasons it was built was not only to give the Weatherford some competition, but by that time, the Westerns were very popular as far as movies. And a lot of them were being filmed east of Flagstaff on the Navajo and Hopi Reservation, around Winslow. They were also <clears throat> excuse me, being filmed south of Flagstaff in Sedona. But any number of the actors would want to come into town for the weekend and just have a nice bed to sleep in. I don't know what their accommodations were out there, but that's how it was explained to me. And John Wayne was a a frequent visitor to the uh, Monte Vista. And in fact, he reported a ghost story that has become a very famous one about the Phantom Bellboy. And uh, John Wayne reportedly was in room 210 and uh, he had came in after a day of filming and had told the staff, you know, I don't disturb me. I'm tired. I'm just going to take a shower and go to bed. Apparently he was in his room. I don't know for how long. And he just knocked on the door. He's a little bit annoyed. And he calls out, who is it? And he says, room service. And he says, I didn't order anything. About five or 10 seconds later, knock, knock, knock. John Wayne says, I told you I didn't order anything. And so apparently he was walking towards the door as the knocking was going on, throws it open, and there's nobody there. <laughs> and nobody in it, nobody down either side of the hall. I mean, this is, you know, an old hotel with those narrow hallways. So he, he told the staff about it, and that has become one of the stories associated with the Monte Vista that's been passed down. What's interesting and about he, that is you uh, could say maybe he was hearing a knock at somebody else's door, but then there wouldn't be knocking again. And surely you would still see somebody in the hallway if you're almost at the door when you're hearing knocking. Right. I think that's the crux of it is that when he opened the door and looked outside, there was nobody there. Yeah. Anywhere in the hallway. I don't know if anybody else has heard knocking, but I did speak with uh, people who worked at the Monte Vista. And they've said that they've caught as during the night, the night staff, as they have to do their, their rounds to walk down the halls. Occasionally they will see something flitting out of the corner of their eye. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's kind of a spooky hotel because it's an old hotel with those narrow hallways. It definitely gives, gives one thought. Sure. Uh, there's another story. Now, this has had a lot of reports, and that's in room 306. And as I said in the, a little bit about the history, there was, there was a very active red light district south of the tracks in Flagstaff. And it actually was going pretty strong until I was told that one of the houses of ill repute operated until sometime into the late 1960s. And of course, it had to, uh, it had its, I believe it was under a boarding house was how it was registered. Sure. But he, but some of the older gentlemen I talked to who were going to NAU at that time, it seemed like it was a pretty uh, well-known secret, so to speak, that that was where... You could get a good time. Go for, uh, yes, for a good time or a little experience or whatever. Gotcha. So, so this was in the 1940s, and it was said that there were um, two ladies of the evening that were invited to a private party in room 306, I think it was. But apparently there was a lot of drinking and carrying on and something happened in there. There was a fight or there was some violence and both of the women were thrown out of the window. Mm. And they and this is a third story, so they, they died on the sidewalk below. I think I believe I did try to look that up to verify it. And I don't I could not find any newspaper report of that, but in Arizona Historical Society, it sounds as if the men were not 
the story goes that the men were not prosecuted. Yes, who go in that room, they have reported feeling watched by unseen eyes. Male guests, not the women, but male guests have uh, awoken in the night and feel like they're being suffocated. It seems to be uh, a room that is not very welcoming to the males. <laughs> gotcha, I can see why. <laughs> there's also the room next door, room 305, that was the residence of a woman, an older woman who actually lived in the hotel for, I think it was the last seven or eight years of her life. I believe she passed away sometimes in the 1970s. And she used to sit there by the window and she would sit in her rocking chair and look out on the street below. So when she did pass away, it was a staff member in the hotel that found her. And afterwards, uh, they began to, the staff began to notice odd things about the room. Of course, it was cleaned in that after she uh, had passed away. But the rocking chair stayed and people, the staff members would find it or even residents of the people who would come to stay in the hotel would find it rocking at various times in the day. And they would move it away from the window. And uh, they would still come in and find it rocking as if someone had just gotten up out of the out of the chair. Neat. So that's kind of a a weird story. Sure. And and the bar downstairs in the Monte Vista is it it is kind of a spooky space. It is kind of closed in. It's dark, but uh, it is reportedly very haunted. And I spoke to a number of the people um, who uh, work down there, the bartenders especially. And one young woman told me that the jukebox in the corner had a really scary habit of turning itself on and off throughout the night without any money put into it, you know, when it had not been activated. And that's another area where a woman has been seen dancing around in the corner in just kind of a twirl of light. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of a spooky hotel. Yeah, there's a lot of activity going on there. Right. And so one of the, I tell people that in all of the research I've done, probably where I hear the most of the haunted stories come from the public library. So the public library is actually the site of the old Emerson School. And the Emerson School was opened, I believe, in 1899. And it did not close until 1970, I want to say. A long and time. it operated all that time. It is a long time. And so it operated as a first it was it had all of the grades and then I believe like first through through high school and then later it became more of a grades one, I think, through ten, if I'm right. So there's any number of stories about deaths that occurred in there. One is about a janitor who sometime in the 1920s, there were only two keys to the school. The principal had one of the keys. The janitor had the other. And he would arrive at the school before any of the staff members or students. In the uh, wintertime, he would come in and he would fire up the furnace. And towards the uh, spring or early fall, he would be there to open up the windows to, for air circulation and that. Sure. Right. And so one day, it was in winter, the principal arrived and the, the uh, door was locked. Well, that was unusual. And he had a key, so he let himself in and uh, teachers arrived. And it was obvious that uh, the furnace had not been lit. They looked around uh, and went downstairs to the basement to start the furnace. And there they found the janitor had apparently hung himself from the rafters. So they found his found him hanging there. Hmm. That was eerie enough or frightening sure. enough. And he had a wife and two children, I believe. They lived in a little house not far from the school. So two of the teachers had to go trudge through the snow and and notify his wife of what happened. And when they got there and knocked on the door, nobody answered. And the house was very, very still. Didn't seem right. One of them went and um, got the deputy, I, I believe it was at that time. And he arrived and entered the house. And he found the wife, the, the, the woman with her two children, had been uh, strangled in uh. their bed. So it looked like that was a, a murder-suicide. Sure. And the story goes that not so much right after the death, but years later, more around the 1940s, 1950s, it, the apparition of the janitor was seen moving through the school. He would often be seen just 
as if he he was dressed for work or with a hammer in his hand, as if he did not um, know he had passed away. Oh, wow. When the school building was condemned in 1980 and then torn down to uh, make way for the library, but almost immediately, the librarians began to report doors opening and shutting when no one was in that vicinity of the library. Strange noises after hours and objects, book carts being moved overnight, and that apparition of that janitor had been reported in the far corner, or they believe it is the same one, has been seen in the far corner of the library, which has no stairs. It's one one floor on the main floor, but it there has been seen the apparition of a looks like a man dressed in work clothes, and it seems like he is climbing stairs in that far corner, and he, he kind of climbs up and then just dissipates. Now, are there actual stairs in that far corner? No, there there's, <gasps> there are no stairs in the corner. It is all one floor. Wow, so that's was, weird. Um, it is weird. And when I was doing some research for my tour, I ran into a young woman. The library employs a lot of uh, part-time people, especially young people in high school and college. Pre-computer, they used to have to come in and, you know, do a lot of the uh, going through stamping, reshelving books, making sure that the books were bought in on time. I don't know, various paper paperwork type things. And she told me that um, when she worked part-time there, the library at that time was closed on Sundays to the public. And she said nobody wanted to go in there for the Sunday shift where they would actually go through the carts and reshelve books because she said invariably something would be out of place. And not only out of place, but in one corner of the library is the children's section. And I tell you, Diane, I used to take my son when he was very young to the uh, library. I loved it. I mean, I always got such a good feeling from it in the daytime. But the children's section has big paper mache animals um, sitting on top of shelves. There are projects that have won awards in uh, various art shows that are displayed and little desks and chairs for the kids. Invariably, they would go into the children's section and chairs would be overturned. The paper mache animals, or at least one or two of them, would be found in the far corner as if somebody had flung them. Not like they just had chipped off the shelf, uh-huh. but like as if there was some violence that had occurred in there. And this young woman told me, she said, it just had a bad feel to it. So it just, I just got the creeps. And of course, everyone in the library knew about this. Not so much the community at large, but the people that worked in the library all knew that there were just weird things happening there. And I ran into another woman a little bit later who was asking about my research. And she told me she had actually been employed by the library on the east side. I'm talking about the west side, the main library. And she said, oh, yeah. She says, we all know that that place is haunted. And she said, my theory is, (laughs) I know. And I said, oh, well, I don't think anybody else I talked to in the community knew that. But And she said, my theory is that the library, um, when it opens its doors, there's usually um, quite a few homeless people that are waiting to get in, especially in the wintertime. They have a policy. They let them come in and anybody come in as long as they're not disruptive. And um, there are chairs there. I know that a lot of times when I go in there, there'll be people sleeping in the chairs that um, appear to be homeless, indigent. And so she said, a lot of these people, they pass away, and the library is the place that they think of as their home. That was the place where they would spend 10 hours of their day. It was a warm place. Mm -hmm. Um, It was open to them. And she says, when they pass away, she said, I think they come back there because that's the place they 
new. I thought that was a great theory for some of these hauntings. Yeah, I'd never thought about it when it came to libraries and such, because there's a lot of public libraries I've been in, especially in bigger cities like Denver and such, where, you know, you'd see a lot of homeless people in there because it's a nice warm place to be during the day. And if they're not disrupting or anything, they usually just kind of leave them alone. So I I hadn't thought about that. I thought maybe the custodian obviously was very attached to the school if he chose that as the place where he'd go to kill himself rather than just doing it at home after he murdered his family. And so I was like, since it meant so much to him, maybe he was upset that they'd torn it down and put this library in its place. But you could have multiple things going on here, too. It could be him and some homeless people hanging out. Right, right. There was also a report. Somebody was telling me another young woman who had worked there part-time and during the school year told me that when she was shelving books, and she was very embarrassed to, to tell me this story because I guess she thought I might not believe her, but she said she they were she was pushing that, that big cart. There's only two of them in the library at this time. It was locked to the public. So she was pushing her cart and shelving the books in the reference section. So she said she had a, a big old book to put up in an empty space. And when she, so she bent down, picked it up, and she went to put it in the space. And there was, looking through at her, was the face of a, all she could call it was an angry man, like a, a scary, angry man looking back at her hmm. through that, the space she was going to put that book. So I said, well, what did you do? She goes, well, she said, I dropped the book and I yelled and the other person that was working with me came. And of course we, we ran around. I mean, that's just a little aisle. We ran around and looked, but if nobody else was in the library. She said, that really terrified her. I, I'm not sure if she quit after that or if she just refused to work the Sunday morning shift after that. It really frightened her. I really think, in in my opinion, whether it was because it was a school and there were happy memories there for some people, or um, because of the homeless population that uh, found refuge there, I really uh, found that the most stories that I heard came uh, came from the library. Well, it makes it's a great place to have a lot of stories because the other thing you have in a library is a lot of history books and a lot of history. Period. It makes you wonder how much attaches itself to that. A lot of people donate their books to libraries. There's a, one other place that I just find fascinating in Flagstaff that I think your listeners would find fascinating, too. It, it is a little bit of a gruesome story. It took place in the late 1930s, 1937. Imagine Flagstaff in 1937. It, it has really become quite a thriving little town. The university is a normal school. It has any number of students there. Lowell Observatory is functioning, and Lowell Observatory has uh, visiting astronomers making news throughout the scientific world. You have the lumber mill is still working. It makes lumber, also making a lot of cardboard boxes, things like that. And the tourism, so the Grand Canyon tourism has brought a lot of people to Flagstaff. A lot of people, also historians and archaeologists interested in the, the Native American cultures that surround us here. So if you were anybody of any importance in the 1930s or 40s, you probably had a house on LaRue Street. And the houses there are still gorgeous. They're just really beautiful old houses with uh, almost all of them have a front porch. A lot of them have the volcanic rock that's native to Flagstaff, too, from the all the volcanic activity around here, the big yard. So there was a family, the Walk-Up family. And there is at Northern Arizona University a Walk-Up dome from Lawrence Walk-Up, who was a president there in the past. And this Walk-Up family is no relation at all to the Walk-Ups of Northern Arizona University. John Walkup was a, was a man who had various interests. He was on a Coconino County supervisor. He happened to be the chairman that year of 1937. He was married to a woman, Maria, and they had uh, four children. When I went back in the, the microfilm and reading the newspapers in the library, I would find John Walkup reference in the, they had a little section like, what's new in town or what is going on in Flagstaff today? So you'd always find a little blurb about John Walkup. But in 1937, 1936, I, I couldn't find much about his wife. And with four children, and her youngest, I believe, was born in 1936. So she was probably uh, too busy to be out and about like John Walkup was. Mm-hmm. So it was in the summer. 
out in July of 1937, and there was a meeting in Phoenix of the county supervisors statewide. So John Walkup had to make the trip down there, and in those days, there was no Interstate 17, so it was quite a long trip. You'd have to go down and through Clarkdale and and up to Jerome, and then up over the, the mountain and around and down to Phoenix. Apparently, there was also a women's baseball tournament uh, that was going on in Phoenix. And because it was such a long trip to get down there, he offered to take a few of the women in his car, the young women in his car. They were competing in some championship game down there. So everything was reported to be very quiet at the walk-up home. One of the local doctor's sons uh, said that Marie Walkup, who was John's wife, had called around seven or eight and asked to speak to his father, but his father was at a party and the son said, well, can I take a message? And she said, no. She says, I'll, I'll talk to him in the, in the morning. It's only something with my stomach. So later that night, it was about midnight north of town uh, near the Schultz Pass. Let me back up here. North of town was the Flagstaff Country Club. And so this was a golf course and a little clubhouse that was beneath uh, one of the base of one of the mountains. There's a path that, that goes up into the mountains from there. There were four young people that had hiked up into the mountains to look at the full moon. Then they were walking back down. It was very, very dark. And so they would come out towards the rear of the country club, of the golf course. And there standing in the moonlight was the shadow of a car. And, of course, that was very odd. This was 1937. They wondered what the car was doing out there. And as they walked up to it, um, approached it from the front, they didn't see anybody. But then as they walked around to the back, right to the back of the rear tire, there was a woman. And she was sprawled out. There was a long shotgun there. She looked as if the shotgun was laying on top of her, pointed towards her head, and one of her shoes was off, and she was dead with a shotgun wound to her head. Mm. So these young people were horrified, of course. Two of them stayed there. There were no cell phones, so they stayed there, and two others got into their car, and they drove into town to the sheriff's. They had to actually go to the home, get him woke up. He grabbed his deputy. He called the doctor. They made their way back out to the country club. Now, immediately, they, when the sheriff got there, he said he recognized the walk-up's car because these were pretty prominent citizens in Flagstaff at the time. And he walked around. He viewed the body. And indeed, it was Marie Walkup that was laying there dead. So the sheriff left the deputy there with the, with the body, and he and the doctor headed back into town to go to the Walkup's house. They knew that John Walkup was supposed to be in Phoenix attending the county board of supervisors meeting. You know, this is a small town, and everybody kind of knew each other's business to some extent. So they drive up to the house. It's very quiet. They go up the steps to the front door and stuck in between the screen and the front door was a note and it was to the milkman. And it was said, it was written in Marie Walkup's handwriting and it said, no need to leave any milk today. So the uh, sheriff gained entry into their house and was very, very quiet inside. So he went off to the, to the left of the ground floor and there was a, a baby's crib there. I believe that was Rose, who was about a year and a half. So he, he went to the crib, and there in the crib, all dressed in her pajamas and with the uh, her blankets pulled up to her face, looking very peaceful as if she was asleep, was the baby. But she had actually been stabbed in the heart with oh. an ice pick. Oh, man. Yeah, so uh, in that same room, there was a cot, and there was one of the boys was on the cot. Uh, they went over to the to the cot, and they, the little boy looked again as if he was asleep. He was dressed for bed. The covers were pulled up to his chin, but he had also been stabbed. They went upstairs in the, the upstairs room. One of the other children was found the same way. There was in, actually Rose, the eight-year-old girl was Rose. And Rose was the only one who was found differently. It looked as if she ha was half out of bed, as if she had been trying to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And not only had she been stabbed, she had also been strangled. Ugh. 
So, right. And so, of course, this is a horrifying scene or would be a horrifying scene anytime, Mm -hmm. but especially in this little town with this very prominent family. They looked about the upstairs room and they found two letters that were sealed and they opened that one was addressed to John Walkup. They opened it up. These letters, by the way, were printed in the local paper. So you could actually read what was written Mm -hmm. in each one. It appeared to have been written by Marie to her husband saying, basically, I'm sorry. I know I'm such a burden and the children too, and you'll be better off without us. And the second letter was addressed to Marie Walkup's sister. And in that letter, she had detailed everything that she wanted done for the funerals, from the outfits the children were to be dressed in to the music that was to be played. The Walkup family, Marie, and the four children are buried in the cemetery that's across from the university. One thing I found so disturbing about this, besides the obvious fact, is that nobody ever talks about it. There's very little mention in a follow-up in the newspaper of what happened. There was extensive coverage, not only in Flagstaff, but this murder-suicide was front-page news in Chicago, in San Francisco. There were papers all over the Western United States, as well as uh, blurbs mentioning it all the way to the East Coast and overseas. But after the funeral, when the Marie and the children were buried, it was as if the door was just suddenly closed. And there's very little written about it since. Well, you think about this is 1937. And, you know, nowadays we hear these stories, unfortunately, a lot more often. But you would think back in 1937, you wouldn't typically hear about a mother who kills herself and her four children. Right. And I was really, I wanted to find out what happened to John Walkup. Yeah. After that happened. And so I would look through the microfilm. It, It appears as if he went back to work within a week or two. Wow. At the, the Board of Supervisors. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. I just can't even imagine. And yeah. so I so I kept digging and digging. And I did find out, finally found that he had died sometime in the 19, I believe it was the late 1960s, early 1970s in Sun City, Arizona. And by digging further, I found out that he had apparently remarried at some point and did have one child that survived him. So I, I felt a little bit better after reading that yeah. uh, because I just I could I couldn't understand what how someone could go on after that. Sure. You would just think you'd want to just curl into the fetal position and be done. Oh, sure. I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. The um, local library in the 1976 to 1978, they did a bicentennial project. And I believe it was actually overseen by one of the professors at NAU. And it's archived at NAU. And this project, several of the local librarians would would interview citizens of Flagstaff. A lot of these people are already in their 60s or 70s. Some were a little bit younger. Some were a little bit older. They could talk about themselves and their mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers to get some sort of historical remembrance of Flagstaff. And I found this whole project is just so fascinating because a lot of these people were prominent citizens or the sons and daughters of prominent citizens, some of pioneer families. Other people just had businesses here, and they really didn't shy away. The librarians did not shy away from uh, not only the history of Flagstaff and what it was like growing up here, but also about subjects like racism or or how were the the Hispanic population treated or were there any Blacks in Flagstaff? And, of course, there were several Black families, of course, in, in Flagstaff as well, and they asked about that. They asked about poverty or, or how did people survive the depression so it was really gave a if you read there was like 70 to 90 interviews and just by reading 40 to 50 you can get a really good idea of what life was like in this town and kind of how it grew and maybe what the feel of it was as it evolved so rapidly and of all those interviews, there was only one person who mentioned walk-up murders. And I believe that was Billy Yost was her name. And at 
one point she had worked for the Coconino Sun, which was the newspaper at the time. And she was very, very dismissive of uh, Marie Walkup. And I believe her quote was something to the effect of, I guess she felt she had the right to kill them. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it. What she did was a terrible thing, but I kept wondering, why did she do this? As I read more and more of of the newspaper on the microfilm from years earlier, it's like she kind of disappeared from the social scene. And she had been a young, vivacious woman. Somewhere in there, her husband was the only one featured in the news, and, and she was home with the children in what? I don't know that she just wasn't mentioned much. So I I really find that part of it intriguing, I guess. Yeah. A few years ago, I was walking um, down the street on LaRue and happened to pass the house. And there was a man sitting out on the porch. So I went up to him and said, "I, I bet you don't know what house you live in. And I was under the understanding it was being rented at that time. So uh, I said, but you don't know what house you live in. And he goes, oh, yeah, this is the old walk-up house. I said, oh, you know about it. And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, my grandparents bought this house from John Walkup. Oh, whoa. Yeah, in the 1930s after the murders. And I said, well, tell me about it because I'm fascinated by this. And he said, well, they got it. It's a beautiful house on the corner lot, big lot around it, a detached garage, which was kind of unusual, you know, and still is in Flagstaff in in the downtown area. So he said they got it for just a song and a dance. He said nobody would buy the house. Well, yeah. Obviously. (laughs) With all the, Mm -hmm. yeah. The history. (laughs) So, the history, right? Yeah, four murders inside of it. But his grandparents bought it. And he said his mother and sister were at least teenagers at that time. He said his aunt, so his mother's sister, she would not go upstairs in the house. She hated the house. She swore it was haunted. His mother was the one who decided, who was able to, who stayed in it after she got married. And when he was born, this man, he was raised in this house until he was like 10 or 11 years old. I said, well, how did you feel about it? You know, how did your mother feel about it? He goes, well, my mom thought it was haunted, but she just, she would just keep on doing whatever she was doing and ignored it. He said, I never noticed anything. I said, oh, I see. He said, yeah, I don't let that kind of thing get to me. He said, but he said, when he got married, and his wife was expecting, they moved into that house and they had their little girl and they raised her there for about 10 years. And he said when his little girl was about three or four years old and she was at the breakfast table, she suddenly looked up and said, you know, there's little kids that play in my room. (laughs) No, we don't know. (laughs) No, we don't know. And yes, he said his wife got very freaked out about it. He was not so freaked out about it for some reason. Um, But they did notice, too, that she would sometimes sound like she'd be upstairs in her room talking to someone and there's nobody there. One time she also said to them, you know, I woke up. I woke up last night and they were all standing over my bed and looking at me. And he said, who was looking at you? And she said, the children. (laughs) I know. So I happened to, this kind of ties together. I happened to run into somebody I had worked with. Um, I hadn't seen her in about 10 years. And she asked me what I was doing. And I was gave her a little rundown on some of, the, um, some of what I had learned. And she says, oh, we had a house on LaRue when my daughter was growing up. And I've never heard anything about any haunted house or murders. And I said, well, it's said, you can Google it, you know, that the murder was reported and there's, you can find articles of it online. And, uh, hmm. And for some reason we ran into each other again, again, this woman I hadn't seen in 10 years, a few days later. And she kind of grabbed me and she said, oh my God, I was driving up LaRue and I, pa- I remembered what you said. I passed by the house and I thought, oh, that's where the house where my daughter's best friend lived. And she says, I've got to tell you something. One day when my daughter was like five years old, she went to spend the night there. And she came running home and said, I am never going to spend the night there again. That that place is haunted. My friend, who's a very sensible kind of person, 
said she just didn't want to encourage her daughter's imagination, didn't just kind of change the subject and just, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, she can come over here and spend the night then. It didn't explore it any further because she knew nothing about that. And so she told me that story. And I told the man that and he goes, oh, yeah, that was one of my daughter's friends. And he said, you know, I got curious about uh, the walk-up murders. So I, I went down, when I was downtown, I around NAU, I went across to the cemetery and started looking for the gravesite. He said, and when I found it, he said, it really kind of hit me. He said, they were murdered on July 22nd, 1937. And my daughter was born on July 22nd. 1987. So exactly 50 years later was when his daughter was born. So he kind of, he said, oh, that was kind of like an aha moment. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of had to sit down and and get my breath a little bit. (laughs) Well, I love the story about the woman because she's like, oh, there's no haunted houses down there. And then she drives past and goes, oh, well, you know, I remember that one time. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. My daughter called me that. That's great. Yeah, I really think that that's probably there's been activity around that particular house. It, it just and it's kind of a weird house too. It does have a weird energy to it. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder if the weird energy was there before, and that was partly what made the mother kind of go into her depressive state, or if it was just got that kind of energy because of what she did. I did. I wonder that too. And I did ask him because, as I said, nobody ever writes about that, and so did they grandparents or your parents, did they ever talk about that and talk about her, why that might have happened? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, they'd talk about it. He says, I think she was, she just thought he was fooling around and was jealous. Hmm. That was his take on it from from what he had, yeah, just kind of gleamed from that. So that could well have been. And uh, she had had four children. She was 30-something when that happened. She had four young kids. And she thinks he's stepping out on her. Right. I I don't know if he was. He was certainly a well-respected man Mm -hmm. uh, in town. Uh, But whether he was like a player, I don't know. Well, Susan, these are great stories that you've shared with all of us. And I know when I'm down in the Arizona area, especially Flagstaff, I am definitely going to hook up with you so I can do one of your foot tours. That'd be awesome. I would love that, Diane. Do you want to share your Uh, website with all of the listeners in case they are interested in finding out more? Sure. I have a few dates up for October, and it is uh, Freaky. FlagstaffFootTours.com, spelled with a Y, F-R-E-A-K-Y, Flagstaff Foot Tours. There's two T's in tours. Um, we had to put it that way because apparently somebody else has some kind of foot tour. The phone number is 928-224-0518. Fabulous. Well, again, Susan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciated it. You have a great rest of your Sunday, and I look forward to uh, meeting you in the future. Oh, that sounds wonderful, Diane. And you enjoy your day, too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The memorial for the walk-up children is simple and yet very moving because it's clear that these four children all lost their lives on the same day. It's a grave marker that tells a horrifying story. Do the spirits of the children still remain in the home where their lives were so violently taken from them? Are the hotels and library and Flagstaff haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Susan, and I am looking forward to returning to Flagstaff. It really is a very beautiful city. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I did get an email from Janae. She said, I'm a new listener and have to say your show is phenomenal. Recently, I listened to the episode about Cincinnati Music Hall. I moved to the greater Cincinnati area after college and have been on both the Music Hall Ghost Tour and the American Legacy Tour through Over the Rhine that was discussed on the show. I highly recommend both whenever you find yourselves in the tri-state. Also, the Haunted Covington Tour across the river in Kentucky is well worth it. Lots of cool history on that tour. My very earliest memory in life is of seeing the spirit of my grandfather in my nursery, and ever since then, the paranormal experiences have not stopped. Everything from full-bodied apparitions to objects moving to disembodied voices, being touched by unseen hands, etc. I have plenty of stories, some terrifying, some friendly. I'm turning 31 next month, and as strange as it sounds, I've recently come to terms with the paranormal being my normal. Well, that's the way it is for most of us, Janae, so welcome to the podcast. Glad you found us. 
And then I heard from Jack, who does tours in Darby, and he really enjoyed the episode that we did on Darby, and he actually runs a ghost history tour in Darby. So I'm going to have Jack join me again in the future and hit some of the other sites that we didn't get in that episode and actually pronounce the name right this time. Won't that be fabulous? So thanks so much for contacting me, Jack. I know not everybody sticks around to listen to the end of the show. Some people are just here for the meat and potatoes and they don't want the gravy. But uh, as part of the gravy, many of you've gotten a feel for our gravedigger Mort and that he seems to be getting quite the personality. Well, Mort came up with a great idea that he thought would be a lot of fun. He wants to do eulogies for people. And we decided that we were going to do this as a special limited time offer. So here's the deal. You have until the end of this month, September 30th, 2018, to sign up over at Patreon or at PayPal as an executive producer at the $2 or above level. Then you need to stick around through October and then starting in November... Mort is going to eulogize everybody who's at the $2 and above level. That means for those of you who are already executive producers, you'll be getting a eulogy. That is, if you are current, we do have about 20 to 25 of you that are in decline. That means that there's something wrong with your payment. Either you need to change your expiration date, maybe your name has changed, your address has changed, something is an issue. So you need to get that taken care of if you want to be included in the eulogy. To be on the safe side, just go check all of your information and make sure that it's updated. Then starting in November, we'll start rolling out a few eulogies on every single episode. Again, you only have until September 30th, 2018 to sign up for that to get in on it. I do have some Apple podcast reviews to share. The first one is from Tess McGee. Love the show. Five stars. Ghosts and history are two of my favorite topics. This show is a perfect blend of the two. Well, thanks so much, Tess. Appreciate that. And Mary Jackie. Love the show. Five stars. I actually listened to the show on Stitcher, but wanted to make sure I gave you a good review. I've only been listening for a few months and I'm still playing catch up on episodes. As someone who loves hauntings and history, this show is a dream come true. I enjoy how you explain the history behind the haunts. I look forward to listening to the show when I have a quiet time to myself and love hearing the banter between the double trouble D's. Thanks for doing what you do. Well, thanks so much, Mary, for listening to the episode and for your review. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard new executive producers, Karen Udell and Pamela Newsom, who will both be getting chest tombs. And thank you to Candace Nelson and Tracy Buckman for raising your donations. You will now be moving from the niche wall to marble headstones. Mort, are you ready to start writing some eulogies? Mort, make beautiful poetry. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.